Yes. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. I, I must say it is such a joy to be here. Um, just to go off script just ever so slightly. Uh, yeah, Pastor Brad has just been an absolute joy for my life. So thank you, brother. Every time I have a conversation with him, a cup of coffee or breakfast, uh, he always wants to make sure we're talking about Jesus. And that's the kind of friends you need in your life. So thank you, brother. I uh, love you. And thank you for allowing me to just come and just to share uh, what the Lord is doing. Just a hop, skip, and a jump down the road in Seals Grove, Pennsylvania. Uh, so we are the Joneses. My name is Chapin. My wife's name is Mandy. And we're from the Carolinas. I'm right from Greenville, South Carolina. My wife's right from outside Charlotte. And really, uh, the biggest thing that you need to know about us right now is that next month, by God's grace, we'll have our first child. So uh, we're going to have a little boy. Uh, that's probably like the most excited, exciting thing. And although we're like 10 hours away from family, uh, everybody's asked like, you know, how are you going to adjust? How are you going to you know, be so far away with your first kid? When Mandy and I first came up to Pennsylvania and started going through Sealands Grove, one of our prayers was, God, is this a place where we can raise a family? And uh, by God's grace, we just immediately fell in love with Sealands Grove. Um, if you actually kind of go back to that picture there, uh, if you look on the picture on the right side, like uh, our house, if you ever so slightly see through the trees, it's a, it's a brick building. Uh, so we live right behind Papa John's on the strip. So like, so like God has been very faithful. So not only are we going to have a kid, but we also live right behind Papa John's. So, so like God is good. And that's why we moved to Sealand Square. We get pizza, we have a baby, and now we're like starting a church. So like the three things you need for a, for a good life. Um, but, but more seriously, um, why Sealand Grove though? I mean, why should we even think about starting a church in Sealand Grove? And, and as I looked at the, the area of Sealand Grove, one of the questions I was wanting to ask is, is there health there? Is there healthiness in Sealand Grove? And if you go through Sealand Grove, you'll see a lot of churches. But the question that I want to ask is, what are these churches doing? Are, are they out in the community? Are we evangelizing the lost? Are we discipling Christians? And, and I'm not trying to undermine any church in Sealands Grove. God has used many churches in this community for his glory. But there is now a point in time right now where God is doing something amazing in our valley of Pennsylvania. Uh, 93% of people in Sealands Grove, they don't attend any kind of church. Not a single church. And within the 7, 6% of people that do attend a church, uh, it, it's, they don't even attend them faithfully, and let alone attend a church that preaches the gospel. So as we think about, is there a need in Sealands Grove? Absolutely. There's over 90% of people who will go down the streets of Sealands Grove. And I, I just think about all the men, women, and children that will walk down Market Street or will go shopping or go to the cute little kind cafe there in town and never hear about Jesus. And part of us coming to Sealand's Grove is by God's grace to push back that kingdom of darkness and begin to share about Jesus in the kingdom of light. So I think one of the greatest questions to ask is like, what should we do about it? And really, I think Paul does it best. Paul will actually say in 1 Timothy 4.10, to this toil and strive because we have our hope set on a living God who is the savior of all people, especially to those who believe. And, and with that 93% of people that we want them to know about Jesus, what should we do? We must work. 
We must till the ground of Sealand's Grove. We must till our valley. And it's hard work. It's tiresome work. But there is a great joy knowing people may have their hope set on the living God. And I, I think probably one of the ways that we're doing that right now, and it's happening right now as we speak in Sealand's Grove, is that we, we are trying to push this idea of just being centered on Christ. In everything we do, we're asking the question, are we, are we Christ-centered? When we talk in conversation, are we pointing people to Christ? When we are out in our community in Sealand's Grove, are we helping people see Christ? When we're out in our neighborhood, are we on mission so that people may know who Christ is? And maybe to kind of give a little bit of a tangible picture to something that may look or sound abstract. Uh, so right there, that's actually in our home. And every Thursday night, we just started a group. And uh, by God's grace, we have, last week, we, or this past Thursday, we had about 15 adults. And half of this group, they don't profess Christ. They, 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 don't, they don't follow Christ. And my question is like, why do they keep coming every Thursday night to have dinner and then hear a lesson of God's word or hear about Jesus? And what we see is that right now, especially in our valley, there is a huge thirst for community. It doesn't matter what kind of community it is, but there's something special. There's something unique when we throw Jesus into the mix. Because when you start getting Christians who love each other, who serve each other, who care for each other, who cares about their neighbors, something beautiful is happening. So half this group here, they don't know Jesus, but yet they keep coming and coming. And it's such a joy. And we actually had an opportunity last night to go over to someone's house because they just want this community. And we, we also, every like spring, summer, and fall, we, we want to commit to missions. So we actually do these things in our own house or in our yard where we'll just have cookouts. Uh, we'll have cornhole tournaments. We, we do whatever it takes to just interact with our neighbors so that they may uh, hear about Jesus. And, and that's, that's the heart of the Seal and Scrove Church plan. Uh, our heart is to make God known, to glorify Christ, and to see the lost come to faith. And we do that by just opening up our home and flipping burgers right now. And by God's grace, maybe in the next year or so, we'll actually have a, a gathering where we will just faithfully be able to worship week after week after week. Uh, but that's a small picture of what's happening in Sealand's Grove. And I do want to spend most of our time in God's Word this morning um, so if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to Ephesians 3. Because one of the questions as, as we think about being on mission, whether for us it's in Sealands Grove, for you it's here in Paxinus, or whatever community that you live in, why should we though? I mean, if God's going to do what he wants to do, then why shouldn't we just, you know, sit in our lazy boy, you know, just relax. But we actually see in God's word that there is a beautiful call a beautiful call to missions that you and I are invited into. When I talk about this church plant, I'm not talking about Chapin's work. I'm not talking about my wife's work. I'm talking about the work that God is doing and he has already invited us into. And now God has invited all of us into his work in missions here in our valley. So I know I just said we're going to be in Ephesians 3. I'm going to fool you for a second. We're going to start in Ezekiel 37. You don't have to flip there. I'm just going to kind of give you a, a recap of what's happening in Ezekiel 37. What we see happening in Ezekiel 37 is that God will come to his prophet and give his prophet, Ezekiel, a vision. 
So Ezekiel, he gets this vision, he receives this vision, and he realizes that he's in this valley. So as Ezekiel looks around this valley, he realizes he doesn't see kids running around and playing. He doesn't see bakers baking bread or men farming. But actually, as God comes to his prophet, he brings Ezekiel back and forth through that valley. And all Ezekiel see is bones. As Ezekiel looks throughout this valley, he doesn't see a valley of life, but he sees a valley of death. And you think in that moment that Ezekiel would ask God, like, God, what are you going to do with all these dry bones? And I think for us, like, as we think about this vision and just like, man, what, what could that look like? What, what would that vision look like for Ezekiel to just stand there and just see piles and piles of dry, dead bones? I mean, church... I mean, we can turn on our news. We can flip on our uh, social media. It doesn't take long to see that this world we call home has a lot of piles of dry, dead bones. The, the, the oppression that's here in this world, the hunger, the poverty, war, right? Like, like there is death everywhere. And, and then, like, we don't even have to think globally. We can begin to pull it down a little bit to our own selves and we think about our, our own wives or our husbands, our children, our neighbors, our co-workers, and we look at their lives and we're like, man, where's their joy? Like, where's their hope set at? Why do they seem so hurting or empty inside? But then, like, when we get, like, really honest with ourselves, like, we, we can look at ourselves. And we say, like, man, I, too, used to have such life and vitality for Jesus And now it's like, man, where has that gone? I too feel like I'm just a pile of dry bones. So really this vision that Ezekiel received is not so disconnected from us. But you'll think Ezekiel asked God a question. God, God, what are you going to do though? What are you going to do with all these dry bones? And what's really ironic about Ezekiel 37 it's not, it's not Ezekiel who asked that question, but it's actually God. God will go to his prophet Ezekiel and say, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Now, that's obviously a rhetorical question for God. I mean, this is the God of Genesis 1. The God who put the birds in the sky, who put the animals in the, on the ground, who put the fish in the sea, who took just the, the dust of this earth and made man and woman. So if anyone knew the question, can these bones live, it would be God. And actually what God does next is actually quite amazing. God will tell Ezekiel why he will bring these bones back to life. God says that I will breathe into these slain that they may live. I will put my spirit in you. I will settle you in your own land. And, and so like, why is God messing with these dry bones? It's right here. So that then you, my people, will know that I am Lord. Then that you, my people, will know that I am Lord. So I think a really helpful question for us this morning, as we think about being on mission, as we think about the Sealand Grove Church plan, whatever mission field God has you in, the question you and I have to answer is, do you believe in a God that can take dead bones and give them life? Because the way you answer that question will affect how you're on mission. 
And by God's grace, my hope is for all of us to, one, have experienced the transforming work of Christ in your own life and that God can continue to do that work through you in your own community. Because what we'll see in our passage this morning is that God has been up to something. God's been up to something beautiful, something amazing, but yet there is a mystery to it. What we will see in our passage is that God has now opened up a way to once again welcome people back into his kingdom of life. So if I have to put like a main point on this entire passage this morning, it will be this, that God is using his church to push back the kingdom of darkness, that God is using his church to push back the kingdom of of darkness. So if you have your Bibles with you at Ephesians 3, I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. So let's read the word of the Lord together, starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I'm the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Church, this is the word of the Lord. So let's Go ahead and dive into our text this morning with our first point, God's eternal church. So really at the beginning of creation, we see something beautiful unfold. We see God make everything. And it's quite amazing, right? Like he took the nothingness of this universe and made something amazing, something glorious. But at the, at the climax of creation, we get to Genesis one twenty seven. We, we see God create man and woman, but something special happens. Genesis one twenty seven says, And then I will make you, man and woman, into my image. So at the very climatic point of creation, we see God create people, man and woman, to reflect him. So right from the start of creation, we've we got to get this idea that God has always had a heart to have a people for himself a people to reflect him, to reflect his gloriousness, to reflect his holiness, to reflect his love, to reflect his righteousness. That, that's what it means to be created in his image, to re- reflect God. So since the beginning, Genesis 1, 
man and woman has been designed to be a people for God. But as you may know, it doesn't take long for man to mess it all up. It actually only takes three whole chapters for man to mess up this beautiful relationship between God and man. What we see happen is that this serpent, also Satan, this evil one, he, he kind of sneaks into the garden and he convinces Adam and Eve to doubt God. Now, now in that moment when Adam and Eve sinned, they ate of the tree of good and evil, they ate of its fruit, they sinned. And in that moment, the relationship has now been broken between man and God. The, the sin has now caused a hindrance to God's holiness. So in that moment, God could have just, you know what, I'm just going to press a restart. I'm, I'm just going to start over again. But, but again, we can't forget who they were. They were his very own image bearers. He loved them. He cared for them. He, he desired to have these people for himself. So instead of restarting everything, God decides to give a promise. He decides to give a promise. Although you're a sinner, although you're broken, you don't deserve anything, he decides to give a promise in Genesis 3.15. A promise that one day there will come an offspring and that this offspring will come and crush the head of the serpent. The one who will defeat sin, the one who will defeat death, and ultimately defeat the evil one. So the question is, who will be the serpent crusher? Who will be the one to finally fix what man broken in Genesis 3? So we, we go through the Bible. We get to Noah. Man, is Noah, is he the serpent crusher? Do you know much about Noah? He's definitely not. We get to Abraham. Is Abraham finally the one to fix the sinful, broken relationship? We'll see Abraham. He'll lay with his servant. We'll get to Moses, and then we'll get to David. We, we get through all these people. We're asking the question, like, who, who is it? Who's going to once and for all crush the head of the serpent? All throughout the Bible, we're trying to answer that question. It's a great mystery. We don't know. We're just hoping that God will stay faithful to his promise. Paul will actually pick up on this mystery in verses 4 and 5. Look at it with me. It says, when you read this, you can perceive my insights into what? The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations that's now been revealed. So, so right here, what we see is that Paul now picks up on this mystery title. There's something about Christ that has this mystery to it. And thankfully, Paul's not going to leave us in suspense because he'll tell us. He'll tell us what this mystery is, what the meaning of this mystery, this, this mystery or this mission that God has been on since Genesis 3 has finally been revealed. Because look at verse 6. The mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. And here it is, through the gospel. So there it is. That, this is the mystery. This, this mystery has finally been revealed after all these years that we've been, who is going to be the one to crush the head of the serpent has now been revealed through Christ Jesus and his gospel. And notice, it's not just Jews, but yet now it's Jews and Gentiles. 
So all peoples who, who follow or put their faith in this gospel will be saved. Who will receive this blessing. And really, Paul, in his clearest definition of what is the gospel, is in 1 Corinthians 15.3. He, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15.3. Like, what is this gospel? That Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and on the third day he rose. Like, that is the message that redeems God's people. So, so going back, like, remember, like, God has a heart for people. He has a heart to have a people for himself. Sin broke that. And now there's something about Christ and this gospel message that restored God's people, that restored this new relationship. So when Christ died on the cross, not only did he purchase eternal life for you and for me, but yet he purchased and formed a new people. And that new people is the church. So, so when I say the word church, I'm not talking about a brick and mortar building. I'm talking about those who profess Christ as a savior. So if you're here this morning, you profess Christ as savior. You are the church. You are the one who has been redeemed. You are the one that's now part of this new people of God that God has this deep heart and longing desire for. But Paul doesn't stop there. So, so not only does God make a people for himself, and we see that he did that through Christ and through the gospel, but now he's going to give this unique purpose. So, so, so if you're a follower of Christ here this morning, like you have this unique purpose. So let's look at that. God's eternal purpose. God's eternal purpose. So, so just like, let's simply put it first off, that the purpose of the church followers of Christ is to reveal God's glory. It's to reflect his goodness and his holiness, his righteousness, his, his glory. But one thing that Paul will do in our passage for us is that it's easy to think like, all right, I'm just going to, I'm going to do all these good things for God. I want to glorify God. And we got this idea that God's glory just stops when it hits the ozone of our atmosphere. But Paul is actually going to pick up on something that God's glory, I mean, it continues to go on and go on and go on. And there's a purpose for that. And there's a purpose for you and for me as followers of Christ for that. But before we get there, just hold that in the back of your mind. Let's look at what is the purpose of the church. Look at verse 10 with me. So that through the church, all right, so, so this is God's redeeming work. So through God's redeeming work, the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So, so right here, this is massive, church. So, so God has revealed his purpose for, for Stonington Baptist. He has revealed his purpose for the seal and scrub church plant. He has revealed his purpose, and that is to display the manifold wisdom of God. Paul, what on earth does that mean? I mean, it sounds really important, but I have no idea what manifold means. I don't even know what really wisdom you're talking about. To really just help drive this point even deeper, we need to understand that word manifold. When Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians, that word manifold was just used to describe a cloak. A cloak that you would put on. But this wasn't an average cloak. This cloak was beautiful. It was colorful. It had all these beautiful patterns on it. It was really, really wealthy. So when Paul is saying this manifold wisdom, 
all what Paul is saying is that the church is designed to display God's beautiful, colorful, rich, breathtaking in all wisdom. Like, like when, when people look at the church, they should just be in awe of God, of just how wise he is. So let's, let's again connect the dots. So Jesus sent here on earth to redeem his people, to redeem the church. And now through the church, we are now called to display God's beautiful wisdom. But notice something. Notice, this is where it gets a little weird. Because notice who is observing this wisdom. Go back to verse 10. So, so we see that the church is to display the manifold wisdom of God. To who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, now our hope is that here in Paxinus and in Sealands Grove and throughout our valley and throughout our country and world, that, that as people look at the church, that they will see God as good. God is glorious. God is holy. Like that, that is a good thing to hope for. But notice a new audience has entered into the picture. Not just people in Paxinus, but also to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who's Paul talking about? He's talking about angels. Paul's talking about the angels who are sitting around the throne of God singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And even to the angels who rebelled. There's something about God's wisdom that as angels look at his church, something happens. As they look and marvel at God's beautiful, rich, and colorful wisdom, like these these angels are just being drawn to it. They're not being drawn to you, but they're, they're being drawn to God's wisdom that's being displayed through you. They're the audience. But, but here's the thing. Since the beginning of time, there's been a battle for wisdom. See, Satan thought he was being wise when he went into the garden to cause Adam and Eve to doubt God. Satan thought he was being wise as he tempted Jesus before his ministry. Satan thought he was being wise when he convinced the hearts of many to shout, crucify him. And and it seemed for a brief moment in history that that Satan was wise. As our Savior was there, lifeless, on the cross. It appeared for a brief moment. But God was up to a different story where only him and his beautiful and colorful and infinite wisdom knew the ending to. The story where the Son of God will lead the riches and glory of heaven, who will humble himself not to become a king, but to become a servant. For the Son of God will display the perfect love of the Father where he will heal the sick, feed the hungry, where he will forgive sin, and then ultimately dying upon a cursed tree that for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. The very thing Satan thought he was over and that he was victorious in by killing Jesus was the very thing that had to happen to see redemption take place. And only God in his wisdom knew that to be true. So God, since the beginning of time, has perfectly been orchestrating everything throughout the entire course of history. Everything that God has done has been up to this point to redeem his people 
to save his church, to redeem and bring them back into relationship with him. So, so when, you, when you feel as if your life is falling apart, when, when you don't even know which way is up or down, when, when it seems almost impossible to get out for your nine to five job, when, when it's wondering like, man, where's my life going? Just know that you have a beautiful, unique, eternal purpose through Christ Jesus. And that is to reveal and display the beautiful wisdom of God. Because look at what happens. Look at this new identity you have. And, and church, this is just beautiful. Look at verses 11 and 12. So this was according to the eternal purpose. This has been God's purpose for you and me since the beginning. Since sin had broken this, but the, through Christ, look at what happens. That is realizing Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we may have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. I mean, church, do you see this? How, how, how is it that we used to be children of wrath who were just broken clay pots, who could barely hold any water, who has no worth, no value, who are just broken, messy, filthy sinners, can now have access to the heavenly throne of God with boldness and confidence. So as angels look, at the sinner who is now a saint. The only thing that they can do is just be in marvel or in awe of God's wisdom. Because only a true, wise God can make a sinner and into a saint. Church, this gives a completely different meaning about going to the grocery store. This gives a completely different meaning about serving the single mom in your neighborhood. This gives a, a completely different meaning of how you interact with your annoying coworker. This gives a completely different meaning of how you shepherd your kids and, and husbands, how you shepherd your wife. Because not only may you display the glory of God here on earth, but yet you are now enabling the angels the angels of the cosmos, to continue to worship God in a much greater and glorious way. I just love what John Piper says about this. Missions exist so that angels will stand in awe of God. So when you go on missions, not only is God's glory touching the parts of here on this earth and touching parts of Pax Sinus and in our valley, but yet they're reaching into the cosmos. We don't even know the implications of us just being faithful people of just displaying God's redeeming wisdom here on this earth. So what are we supposed to do with that? God has displayed his redeeming wisdom, this beautiful wisdom as he has now made the sinner into the saint. He has established his church. He's done all these beautiful things. Now, what, what should we do about it? Do, do we keep this wisdom for ourselves? Do we, do we just now, you know, like, that's my little box. I'm good. Let's look at that. Point three, God's eternal mission. God's eternal mission. So, so if you're a part of God's people in Christ, you are now invited to be on mission. And what we see is that God is going to use 
ordinary and messy people to do extraordinary and glorious things. It won't make sense because we're, we're just weird humans who are sinners. But yet God is now wanting to use us. Paul kind of understands this truth a little bit. Look at verse 7 and 8. Paul will say of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So, so first off, when we think about being on mission, it's a grace of God. We don't deserve to be a part of what God is doing, but this is a grace that God has given us, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now, Paul, come on now. You're the very least of all the saints? I mean, we're talking about the guy who was probably the greatest church planner to ever walk this earth. Why are you the very least of all the saints? I think Paul's trying to help us in two ways. One, I think Paul understood his past. He understood that he used to be a killer and a persecutor of Christians, but yet look how God used him to plant church after church after church. It didn't matter about Paul's past. God still used him. And I think through that, secondly, it reminds you and me that no matter who you are, what you've done, how successful you are, how not successful you are, it doesn't matter how weak you feel, God can still use you. So church, don't ever allow yourself or don't ever allow Satan to convince you that God can't use you because you're messy. Because there's something unique And there's something beautiful when God uses messy and weak people for his glory. Because it just continues to point everything back to him. Time and time again, we see Christ go to the hurting, to the oppressed, to the weak. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to not have your life all together. The question is, despite your messiness and despite your brokenness, will you still be a part of what God is doing? And how do you do that? How do you practically be a part of what God is doing? Well, Paul will tell us, look at verses eight and nine. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God so so, so the way that we're supposed to be on mission it's nothing fancy it's nothing necessarily cute or or like clever it's just being a simple follower of Christ it's just simply preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to your neighbor to your children, to your coworker, to the lady at the grocery store. Like, like, like that is what it means to be on mission, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And, and what are those? What are these riches of Christ that these lost people, that people who, who don't know about Jesus, what do they need to hear? They're essentially the promises of God. I just want to name a few. There's a plethora of promises of God that we can spend a whole year preaching on. But I just want to share quickly some riches of Christ that just stirs my own heart affections towards Jesus, and I hope that they will do for you as well. One treasure of Christ that we should share is that God will forgive sin. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Another treasure of Christ is that Christ will make you holy. 1 Peter 1, 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God gives you freedom. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Just a little side note, like that shame and that guilt that we feel can be freed off of us because that shame and guilt was placed on Christ on the cross. And just one more treasure of Christ, Revelations 21.5, is that he will make all things new. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And, and that right there, to to be on mission, to share the riches of Christ. That is the hope of of the Sealings Grove Church plant. So that people may know that their sins can be forgiven, that they they can be free from their guilt, that that, that they, they can see what new life and what good life can be like. That's the hope. It's nothing fancy. It's honestly just being simple. Like we, we, we sometimes make Christianity so complex, so complicated. When all God has said is just tell others about my promises. Tell others about my beautiful redeeming wisdom. So as we end here this morning, I want to end where we started, Ezekiel 37. So it's Ezekiel standing in this valley. He sees all these dry and dead bones. All he knows is that God said that he will breathe into those who were slain. That he will put his spirit into them. Ezekiel didn't know how or by what means that this life will happen for these dry, dead bones. But only God in his beautiful wisdom knew that he will send his only begotten son to come to hang upon a cursed tree so that you and me may have life in his name. So church, God is not done working. He's not. So will you be a part of God's mission? His mission of expanding his wisdom, his glory here on this earth, but again, not only here, but yet into the cosmos. What a beautiful purpose we have, church. So I just want to invite you uh, to invite you into what God is doing in Sealands Grove. Reality is, if, if you want to get your hands a little dirty, just right down the road, we, I have a goal of wanting to pray, prayer walk every inch of Sealands Grove, every inch of the Sealands Grove School District. If you want to prayer walk, like we need people to come pray. And with that, we need people to commit praying for us regularly and faithfully for just hearts to be softened to the gospel. So just invite you to, to come and to pray pray at home, pray here at church. And then also just being on mission takes resources. Uh, it, takes, it takes resources to be on mission as we buy food and host outreaches and try to serve our neighbors. So I just want to invite you into what God is doing in Sealands Grove. But ultimately my hope and my prayer for you is that you just join in what God is doing in your own community and just push into there and just expand the kingdom of God where he has placed you. But obviously I would always love for you to be a part of what God is doing in Sealands Grove. Let me pray.